This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Monsignor Barry Brinkman teaches us about forming conscience, our moral duty. What is sin? How do we determine if an act is evil or not? Exactly, what is conscience? Let's find out. Here's Monsignor Barry Brinkman being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Ken Billinger. We'd like to welcome in Monsignor Barry Brinkman, who was ordained to the priesthood May 17, 1991. He has served in numerous parishes in the counties of Saline, Cloud, Republic, and now Ellis County. Earned a degree in canon law in 1999, was named vice chancellor of the diocese the same year. Later, he served as chancellor for 13 years, served on the marriage tribunal for 17 years, and became judicial vicar in the diocese in 2012. He was elected and served as diocesan administrator between the terms of Bishop Paul Coakley and Bishop Edward Weisenberger and was conferred the honor of Monsignor by Pope Benedict the 16th in 2013 and the hour is now over so um, uh, we're we're I'm just kidding <laughs> that's just a long introduction there's a you've got a lot of things going on there I'm getting old father <laughs> I'm getting old that's what that says <laughs> you just you just doing a lot of stuff we appreciate you coming in welcome back by the way Thank I you. understand uh, you spent a little time in Rome, is that right? Yes. Um, after 25 years of being ordained a priest, a, um, in our diocese, a priest is eligible to take a sabbatical. Sabbaticals both um, for you know rest, but also refreshment and study and further personal um, edification, both spiritual and intellectual. So I was uh, three months in Rome. Uh, the sabbatical program is operated by the uh, North American College there. That's the large seminary the U.S. bishops um, support and have built. Um, there's about 250 seminarians there. Uh, it's a theology school, so this is the last four years of their preparation. So we lived in a facility attached right to that seminary there. So with 32, I had 32 other priests around my age on sabbatical with me. They're um, uh, three from Canada and two from Australia, and the rest were from the United States. Most were from the East or West Coast which was interesting to hear their stories about their experience of church life. Mm. Only three of us from, from the Midwest. Really? So it was a good experience. In the last 10 days, we're in the Holy Land during Holy Week. Oh, so wow. So sabbatical concluded with, um, with that. So we were in Jerusalem for f- four days and then the Sea of Galilee and um, the area of Galilee for the remainder of the time. So have you been to the Holy Land before? No, that was your first, first experience time. and during Holy Week. Yes. That yeah. had to really be special. <laughs> That's wow. a little more... Yeah. Excitement, but also chaos. Oh, the I bet. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That it was a good awesome. experience, though. It was good. Well, great. We're so glad you're joining us this morning. We're talking about conscience today. Our theme uh, this week uh, is throwing into flame, but today the topic conscience you're going to kind of share with us. And uh, so let's start by talking about morality and, and what we mean by that term, if you would fill us in. Usually when um, people think of um, morality, they think of laws and rules and regulations that are imposed upon them by the church or some other religious authority, that's really not the heart of morality. Morality doesn't really center around the question, what must I obey? But it really centers around what sort of person should I become because of my relationship with Christ, because of my faith in Christ, what type of person am I called to become in and through Christ? So 
Another word, another way to say this is, you know, God doesn't want um, robots, just doesn't want exterior conformity, uh, blind obedience, but rather God wants our hearts, right? Uh, because that's where love is. That's where that flame of, of love is. So um, the essence of morality is, is um, this faith in Christ calls us to imitate Christ in our faith and our hope and, and our love. So really morality is all about who a person really is in the heart, the, the character of a person. And so, you know, um, stirring that flame of faith alive means stirring that communion with Christ, making that alive and dynamic, a real relationship, just not um, following a list of rules or laws or commandments. Sure. What about the goal of morality? Let's talk about the what is the goal of morality or being a moral person? You know, those who grew up in a certain era will remember the Baltimore Catechism. And um, the goal of morality, the goal of the Christian life was to love and to serve God, right? And um, and that hasn't changed. So it's to live in union uh, with Christ and communion with God, who is the source of our life and our hope and our love. So that's really the goal of moral living is this preserve and, and deepen and promote this communion with God. So talk about the different types of morality or moral thinking in the world today. Are there different types that, I mean, I, say, I think we, we think of morality, but we really kind of maybe look at that one-dimensional. Yeah, a lot um, of people, when they think of morality, they simply think of, um, you know, perhaps the Christian version of it or, mm-hmm. or some other religious. But there's all sorts of versions of morality, and, and we observe this every day, I mean, um, um, in the world around us. So um, I'll just use some fancy terms to kind of just describe some of these. It's kind of a mindset and a heart set. So there's something called uh, social relativism. Uh, social relativism is if society approves of it, then it must be okay. It must be moral. So if majority people vote that it's okay to do this certain act, then it must be a good act, must be a moral act. Well, <laughs> we know where that leads to, right? In our own society, that the, uh, the debate about abortion, right? It's legal, but yet we don't see it as moral, right? So, so there's an ideal representation of this social relativism. Some people just, whatever the government says, whatever people vote is okay, then that must be moral. So that's one philosophy, the social, it's, relativism means it's relative to whatever society one finds oneself in. Another version of morality is called a personal relativism, that um, the criteria is if it feels good, if it satisfies me, if it serves my purpose, then it must be good, it must be right, it must be okay. So what might be right for me might be wrong for you. It's all personal. I have my own personal version of morality and mm-hmm. and no one can tell me what to do so as long as it feels good it doesn't hurt anyone and i'm satisfied with it then it's moral so that's another version of um morality that's out there and we see that rampant in society too just another final example would be um something called emotivism emotivism is is moral evaluations are are simply expressions of emotions that that if, it, if I'm comfortable with it, it makes me feel comfortable, that must be good. So if good feelings are evoked, it's morally right. So, so it's just simply based on emotions and feelings, this sure. version of morality, not based on any, any objective truths or anything like that. So. You know, and it's, it's interesting because we see that it's social rel- or moral relativism today is just really, 
everywhere, and it's such a big thing. And the interesting thing, I think, that happens, too, because we, we talk about a lot of times with kids and students, you know, high school, they're well-formed in high school, and they get to college and then start to get, you know, they're just inundated with other information. And so we find sometimes students, uh, I heard a story of a girl who said, you know, I'm, I was very strong in her faith, very strong Catholic, um, had, you know, did not agree with abortion, did not agree with um, uh, same-sex marriage and all of the things, you know, that are big issues today. And what began happening is she was getting attacked for that, for her beliefs. Uh, saying she was intolerant and all of these things. And that really weighed on her to the point where she began to say, well, gay marriage is not right for me. Hmm. And abortion is not right for me. And so the minute you add for me... It's that personal relativism. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It evolves into that. And I think there's that danger there. And those are some of the things that we see happening. And um, And it's difficult, as I think as um, St. Pope John Paul II said, we're to share the truth, but to share it with charity. Hmm. That's sometimes difficult to do do both. Mm -hmm. Stand by the objective truth, but also do it. Still love love people, even if they disagree with you or oppose you. And a lot of times the emotions start to happen there, that's for sure. So uh, let's talk a little bit about different types of morality and moral thinking in the world today. We kind of talked about that. But um, some of the beliefs that serve as the foundation for morality and moral decision making. Well, I'll just speak it, obviously, from the uh, Christian Catholic uh, perspective. Uh, The basis of our uh, moral decision making is that uh, the basic belief that we're made in the image and likeness of God. So that's right out of Scripture. It's one of the uh, foundations of our faith. We're made in the image and likeness of God. We're loved by God. This means we're blessed. God has blessed us with intelligence and reason. We're not animals. We're not um, puppets. We're not robots. We, God has made his own image and likeness, which means we can think and, and we can reason. We've been given a mind. This also means we're entrusted with power. Right when we're given intelligence and reason, we have the power to make dis- make choices. God has given us a free will, um, so we're not simply like the animals based on um, instincts and things like that. And though some of these choices um, are are unimportant, you know, whether I wear a red shirt or a white shirt today, or whether I wear brown shoes or black shoes, those are not moral decisions. But some decisions are decisions about values. What type of person? Uh, am I becoming? Those are the moral uh, moral choices we have to make and uh, what we ought to do, what we have an obligation to do because of our faith, uh, what type of person we want to be. Um, so that's sort of the basis of decision-making. We're not self-created. We, we really don't own our lives. There are objective truths out there. We're made in the image likeness of God, given reason, intelligence, and free will um, so that we might um, choose to know God, to, to love God. So that's sort of the basic foundation for why we're empowered to make um, you know, more decisions. Talking on conscience this morning with Father Barry Brinkman, and how does our Catholic faith tradition really determine whether an act is moral or immoral? Okay. Um, there's three um, traditional elements, and I might add, you know, um, the uh, moral theology, with regards to the study of moral theology and everything, the... Um, Catholic Church is sort of um, far ahead of um, most um, 
Protestant scholars and things like that because we go back to the original mm-hmm. Roman law and, and, and the early scriptures of the saints who, who passed this down to us too as well. So, um, so these three elements that determine whether act is morally right or wrong is universally recognized, whether you're Protestant or, or Catholic. So the act itself, obviously, is, is the act, it, it, the deed itself has to be looked at. You know, some acts are evil in themselves. They're always, uh, they're never justified, uh, no matter what the circumstances or intentions of a person. So those are, um, those are murder. Um, this is right out of sacred scripture, murder, um, adultery. Uh, blasphemy and perjury. So those are the capital sins. You could say that that it, it'd be better to to uh, sacrifice your life than than to somehow um, uh, do these evil acts. So perjury, murder, adultery, uh, blasphemy. So we looked at the act itself, whether it's whether act is, um, and then the second element in determining the goodness or evilness of an act is the circumstances surrounding. Uh, surrounding the act itself. So the circumstances can either increase the goodness of, a, of an act or, or decrease the goodness of it, or it can increase responsibility of a person for why they did that or decrease their responsibility. So the act itself, the circumstances, and the final element that moral theologians look at is the intentions of the person uh, doing the act. Um, good intentions are not sufficient to make a, an act good. So um, um, just because someone has good intentions and the act is intrinsically evil and, you know, uh, and the circumstances there, they might feel like they're forced to do or whatever. Good intentions don't make up for a, you know, act that's evil through and through. So um, those are sort of the three elements. And maybe later on we can do some examples that would kind of um, help us to, to use these tools in assessing whether the evilness or goodness of an act Okay. Well, let's talk about the responsibility of a person uh, determined for an evil act. Uh, how is that responsibility determined? So it's, it's, sometimes it's called blamability or responsibility. Um, obviously, the person has to have knowledge of what they're doing, right? They, they, they know what they're doing. They're choosing to do it. And they have to have freedom to choose it or not choose it. So um, obviously, sometimes a person's freedom is compromised, right, by fear or force or or drugs or whatever. And, you know, um, a lot of people don't appreciate, even in the um, American legal system, it's inherited some of the aspects of Catholic moral theology. Because we've heard cases where a person knew that they were committing intrinsically evil act. Let's say they were um, taking someone's life, murder, but yet they were under the use of drugs. You know, and they use that as a defense, saying I was, you know, wigged out on drugs. I didn't know what I was doing when I... I want to committed this murder, and um, and Catholic moral theologies would say, well, murders and intrinsically evil act through and through. There's no, you know, there's no um, dismissing that. Um, but the freedom to choose or not choose um, can decrease the the responsibility of a person. So in our American legal system, you know, we have something called capital murder, and then we have something called manslaughter, which is a lesser charge mm-hmm. that somehow persons still did the act, still evil, they still have to be accountable, justice has to be done, but they're not as responsible because they're compromised either through fear, force, Mm -hmm. use of mind-altering substances, things like that. You've heard that before, how they Mm -hmm. 
they downgrade the charges because right. the person's still responsible, but they're less so due to the circumstances. Right. That's right out of Catholic moral theology. <laughs> so the U.S. government didn't invent that. Really? It really okay. inherited that from Ooh. the ancient ancient uh, moral theologians. Wow. I guess yeah. I didn't even realize that. So, so. Um, so let's talk about sin a little bit. We're talking about conscience and um, what... What is sin? Kind of a simple question, but what is sin? <laughs> right. That seems to be a question many people are confused about now, yeah, right? So, exactly. And there's all sorts of fancy, um, fancy definitions and deep theological terms you could use, but in the simplest terms, it's simply a failure to love God and to serve God's purposes, serve God's will, God's plans, designs how we are to live and how we are to care for creation for one another. It's really as simple as that. So um, some... Um, Catholic moral theologians have, and spiritual writers have talked about how really all sin is a form of idolatry. So putting something or someone else in the place of God, either mm. ourself or material things or, or money or, or, or whatever. So uh, something stands in the place of God in our lives, and that leads us to do things that are, you know, um, contrary to God's truths and God's love, what God, type of person God is calling us to become. So we, one of the things we talk about with sin, obviously, is there's venial sin, mortal sin as well. What has to exist for mortal or serious sin to occur? Okay. And I might add what I'm sharing with these right out of the catechism of the Catholic Church. There's a huge section on uh, morality and moral theology in the, in the catechism. There's places in that section where it gets into the weeds, gets a little deep, but it's, it's very good. So it's in the um, 1700s, the paragraphs, as you know, the catechism's numbered, so it begins in the mid-1700s and goes into the 1800s, the numbered paragraphs about the um, uh, moral theology of, of the church. And, and so all everything I'm sharing with you is just kind of lifted out of the catechism. I'm kind of putting in more um, palatable <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, terms, but so for mortal sin to exist, and I might add, uh, mortal sin is is an act or a series of acts that, that utterly destroys a you know a person's relationship with God. It it kills all love in a person's heart. Whereas we know venial sin, and this is out of the Catechism, uh, paragraph eighteen fifty five, um, venial sin allows a person allows loves to continue, love and faith to continue in a person's heart, even though it you know it diminishes it or weakens it. So what must exist for mortal sin, the deadliest sin to, to occur. So it has to be a serious matter. It's not like, should I have vanilla or chocolate ice cream? That's not a serious matter. So it's a serious matter. It could be a life and death matter or something that either hurts or helps a person. So it has to be a serious matter. Um, for mortal sin to exist, it has to be freely chosen by a person. So a person is freely choosing it. They know the action and they are freely uh, uh, choosing to do it. The third element is full knowledge on the part of the person. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. And uh, fourthly, um, they're, um, it's not an accident. They are willing it. You know, it's just not a, you can't accidentally commit mortal sin. You have to actually freely choose it, know what you're doing, and, and will it. I want this to happen. You know, I want this to be. So if any one of those areas are compromised, not present, serious, freedom, knowledge, and ascent of the will that then it's not mortal sin. So an example I might add, might, might uh, give is hunting's popular around here. So let's say a hunter is out hunting and he's, he sees across the horizon movement and he, he thinks it's a big buck, you know, and um, he shoots and actually it's a person and he kills that person. 
you know, he thought he was sh- shooting a deer, mm-hmm. and he actually shot a person. Would that be a mortal sin? No. It's killing, but no. No, he he wasn't, he didn't have knowledge that that was a person. He's not willing to commit, he's not in his will, wanting to commit murder. Still, still uh, an evil act, you know, uh, killing someone, but um, obviously two of those elements are missing. Right. That's a moral sense. So, uh, moral that, theology gets really into the weeds, you know. Yeah, it kind of yeah. gets... <laughs> so my, here would be my question then, because um, and there are people that don't realize that not going to Mass on Sunday is a mortal sin. So if they're, mm-hmm. again, because of not, not having full knowledge, if they say, well, I didn't go to Mass Sunday, well, that's a mortal sin. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. That. I, mean, I, I, I use the analogy. How, how yeah, you, we're getting come come to this, this these types oh, okay. of consciences, yeah. but I would I would do it this way. Um, if you're speeding down the highway, you know, let's say the the speed limit is seventy, and you're going going eighty, and the highway patrolman pulls you over, and and you say to the highway patrolman, "I didn't know, I didn't know um, the speed limit." Um, do you think he will let you off the ticket? No. No. He'll say, you should have known, you could have known. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that type of conscience. Oh, it's either okay. lax or, or you know, calloused or whatever. But what are we talking about when we refer to conscience, Father? Um, maybe conscience is the most um, misunderstood um, faculty that we have or capacity. You know, um, some people think uh, conscience is just... Um, thinking things through that it's sort of an intellectual thing that it's part of the mind so they equate conscience with with intellect other people probably the most common is conscience is a feeling that it's emotion that i have um you know that that i'll just go by by what my heart tells me and that that they equate that with conscience another misunderstanding sometimes they think conscience is just um making a decision it's the power to will or decide or power to make make choices but conscience is a faculty in and of itself so we have the power to feel we have the power to think um, but conscience is is of the spirit it's of the soul so just like the the body has a mind and a physical body um, so our um, spirit our soul has a conscience so it's a power in of itself it's a faculty that we have in of itself Separate from thinking, separate from feeling. So a lot of people don't don't understand conscience that way. It's a so it's a power situated in the, in the very depth of the person, center of a person, and allows a person to, as our catechism says, hear the voice of God. Um, it allows it. Catechism describes the uh, conscience as a quote secret core, and and quote a sanctuary. So where a person's alone with God. Where God can speak to the person's um, to the person's very soul, so it's a voice, as the Catechism says, calling a person to love and to do what is good and avoid evil. So that's what conscience is. It's it's not feelings. It's just not thinking things through. It's going to that inner core, that inner sanctuary, where we hear the voice of God, the inspiration of God, God speaking to us. At this point, directing us, uh, leading us, guiding us. And so is, is conscience something that's mentioned in the Bible? Do we find that anywhere? That's always a sometimes criticism for those who um, do a sort of a fundamentalist or literal interpretation of the Bible. And the Old Testament uh, refers to conscience as the mind or the loins or the heart. 
like in the Psalms or Book of Jeremiah, troubled in the heart or, or, or the loins or mind. So there's reference made to that inner core, inner sanctuary of a person, even though the word conscience is not used in the um, in Old Testament. It, conscience is seen in Cain, right, who was troubled. Um, David, who was troubled by his sins, knowing that he did something wrong, counter to God's will. So, however, in the New Testament, it's a whole different world, right? St. Paul refers to conscience 30 times. <laughs> mm. So he actually uses the term. And he says our consciences can either be good or bad, strong or weak, St. Paul says. So that's in the Acts of the Apostles and his letter to Timothy. So, so it's a common term in the um, New Testament. Old Testament uses different descriptions to refer to that inner place where we hear the voice of God leading and, and guiding us. So let's talk about some of the important distinctions that need to be made when we talk about and, conscience. And this is probably one of the most important distinctions is, um, and I'll use a, a couple of uh, fancy terms that's right out of the catechism, there's a posterior conscience and an anterior conscience. Uh, posterior obviously mean it's referring to after. Anterior is referring to, to before. So um, so posterior conscience is what most people are talking about when they say their conscience is troubling them. It's a feeling that comes after a person's already made the choice. They've already committed the act, um, and the feelings of guilt or sadness or joy uh, come, and, and a person relies on these feelings to guide them because, um, uh, because that's how they see their conscience, you know, that, that something happens after the act. And then I'm told whether it was good or bad after I choose it. Well, that's really not conscience as we understand it. Um, and, and plus, feelings are um, unreliable, right? A person can do something very wrong and feel very good about it. So, and, um, so that's an unreliable um, way to view conscience. So that's sort of the posterior conscience. What we're talking about, we're talking about conscience, is the anterior conscience. And that's what Christian morality is concerned with. It's, it's the um, listening to that voice of God through prayer and reflection and, and education prior to a choice, prior deciding to which, which path to choose or which action to take. So it's employing or using your conscience prior to the, prior to the choice. And so that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the feelings that happen afterwards. We're talking about using this power, this faculty God has given to us uh, before, before we act. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or Amazon Echo, please know we'll be right back with more about Forming Conscience, Our Moral Duty with Monsignor Barry Brinkman. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Forming Conscience, Our Moral Duty. With Monsignor Barry Brinkman. Ken Billinger conducts the interview. We're talking with uh, Father Barry Brinkman this morning on conscience and um, what's the relationship between a person's conscience and the role of the church? Well, the church has a very positive, important role to play, obviously, both in the formation of conscience, the illumination of conscience. Uh, the, uh, there's a fact of human need. A person um, 
we're not immediately, we don't know many times the truth immediately, right? We have to seek it out, the truth about a matter and about how God is calling us or which way God is calling us to, to go. So we're needy. We need input. We need assistance. So that's the first point I want to want to make, those who might reject any authority telling them, you know, um, I don't need to form my conscience or anything like that. Well, just like our bodies don't form just accidentally or or overnight, so our conscience needs uh, stages of development, you know, and help and assistance to develop a good conscience. And, you know, the second point in regards to the relationship between the church and human conscience is, you know, historically the the church has been a moral moral leader. It's not perfect. It's failed at times to stand on the side of truth, but more often than not, it's been a force for the improvement of of, of humanity, of, of human society. So the church has accumulated knowledge passed down through the centuries, you know, by beginning with the apostles and then holy men and women that followed them. So the church, as you know, and much to the chagrin of many people, doesn't follow trends or maybe what's popular um, or the tastes of the moment or doesn't follow a particular culture, um, you know, because as a longstanding foundation and tradition is drawing from. So it doesn't. It doesn't bend with the wind or go with, you know. So the church has a, you could say, um, a collection of wisdom, you could say, from the past. Because many of the moral questions we're facing today were faced by the early church and by other points in history. So why reinvent the wheel? The same principles that the church used then can be applied today based on, obviously, Christ's word, sacred scripture, the tradition of the church. And the final point in regards to the relationship of the church to, to the human conscience is uh, we believe the church is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. So as Catholics believe the Holy Spirit continues to guide and illuminates and continues to refer, reform and grow the church. So God is faithful to the church even when we're unfaithful. So the church is God's instrument. So that's for the relationship of the church to human conscience. We have a need for help to illuminate, form our conscience. The church has a vast treasure trove of wisdom collected down through the ages, beginning with the apostolic times. And then we believe that the Holy Spirit continues to illuminate and guide and, and dwell within the church. Father Barry, how, how does a person develop a well-formed or good conscience? Um, there's a great—Catechism describes developing our conscience as a lifelong task. And I'm just going to read this excerpt from the catechism because it puts it in very, very good terms. Um, it's just three sentences long. Um, this is from the catechism, 1784 paragraph. The education of the conscience is a lifelong task. So notice it says it's a lifelong task, not something that we just do in a few months or just a few years. The education of the conscience is a lifelong task, and conscience must be informed and moral judgment enlightened. A well-formed conscience is upright and truthful. It formulates its judgments according to reason in conformity with the true good willed, good willed by the wisdom of the Creator. And finally, it says, The education of the conscience is indispensable for human beings who are subjected to negative influences and tempted by sin to prefer their own judgment and to reject authoritative teachings. So it's a lifelong task to develop our conscience. Um, and that shouldn't be a surprise because, you know, our minds, that's, if, if you truly want to grow as a person, that's a lifelong task, right, to develop your intellect, your mind. So hopefully it shouldn't surprise us as a lifelong task to, 
develop that other faculty that have a power we have called conscience. So, um, so our moral reasoning, our moral understanding grows as we grow, hopefully. So I like, always like to compare it to um, as we grow developmentally, physically. You know, there's different stages to moral reasoning, and, and this has been studied extensively and um, uh, many famous authors on this. So the stages of moral reasoning, they kind of break it into um, com- uh, comparable, you know, uh, to when, uh, the physical development. So, for example, when we're very little, you know, like ages uh, one to seven, you know, when we enter first and second grade, um, our, we do our moral reasoning based on punishment and obedience, right? So a decision based on avoidance of punishment when we're little, right? I'm going to do this because if I don't, mom and dad or grandpa or grandma are going to discipline me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get punished. That's the only reason we're good is because of the fear of punishment. So that's the most basic primary level of moral reasoning. And then as we grow, uh, we, um, uh, we grow into the stage uh, that some moral theologians refer to as personal usefulness. So this is kind of the grade school days and uh, early junior high uh, that I'll, um, I'll do it for pragmatic reasons, that I'll be good, I'll, I'll do the good thing and, uh, because it, it serves my purposes. Mm-hmm. That, so an example would be um, uh, a, a student might say, um, I'll clean my room if, <laughs> if I get to be on the PlayStation longer. Well, so I'll be good, in other words, if I get something in return, mm-hmm. some uh, pleasure or some privilege in return. So parents are used to that deal, right? So that's the, the children's way of I'll be good if it's personally useful. Sort of the third stage of someone matures through moral reasoning is, is they'll conform to the will of their peer group. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So more of the teenage years that whatever pleases others, whatever pleases my peers, I'm going to do. Um, and that's my, my method of moral reasoning, determining whether something's good or bad is if I get approval or acceptance from my peer group. So I kind of conform my will to that of the group. And then as, uh, hopefully as a person matures, there's a stage called authority and social structure, and that is they, they want to uphold the existing authority. They, they, um, they want to uphold the fixed rules and the social order that they have inherited, that they grew up with. So they just want to reinforce uh, what, you know, um, the, the, the traditions, the rituals, the, the way of acting and th- that they've uh, been taught by their parents. And so that's one stage. And the final two stages are uh, the, um, something called social contract. That is, we're good because it's good for the community. It's good for society. It's good for creation. And then finally, the most mature level is a personal conscience that I committed to unconditional love. I'm committed to human dignity and the basic human rights of, <coughs> of others. And that would be the example of the early Christian martyrs. They reached that height of, of the maturity of moral reasoning, that, that uh, I'm doing this because irregardless of what others say, irregardless of persecution and irregardless of, of uh, martyrdom, this is the truth, and I'm willing to die for the truth. Unconditional love, uh, this respect for human dignity, basic human rights, so a person goes through those stages, and, and a person can get stuck in one of those stages. So some adults are simply stuck in, in personal usefulness. 
um, that they'll do the right thing if they'll get something in return, if it serves their needs, their wants, their desires. Some people never get beyond stage one. That they're only, they're, they'll only obey the speed limit because they're fearful of punishment. They'll <laughs> only do this or that because um, they don't want to, you know, um, violate a, a, a law or something mm-hmm. like that. So, so it's kind of interesting to assess where one is at. It's sure. humbling. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So talking about moral reasoning, but let's uh, talk about different types of conscience, too. What and we kind of, of um, um, kind of touched on this when you're talking about um, mass attendance. There's all sorts of, you know, we talk about having a good, well-formed conscience. Um, that's what we all aspire to do, a conscience that recognizes what is true, that's, um, that um, chooses it, wants to do it. But there's other types of conscience that are not as well-formed or, or good. There's, there's something called a crass conscience, crass, meaning a person is simply deaf or insensitive to, to God's voice, to, to God's truth. They, they've grown crass to it, so um, um, uh, rejecting of it, outright rejecting of it. So we see this as sort of an extreme, but we see this around as well. You know, don't talk to me about God or the Scripture. They're just totally rejecting crass conscience. They have a conscience, but obviously it's not open to the light of truth. There's something called a scrupulous conscience, uh, scrupulosity. Scrupulous conscience is sort of an unreasonable fear that that one has offended God or is about to do so. They see, see sin everywhere in every act and thought and gesture. And it, it, it can also be a sort of a, a mental problem, too, the scrupulosity, uh, seeing sin in, in everything. So, you know, a person might say, well, I gave up, uh, gave up desserts for Lent. Well, but I just thought about a dessert. So that must be sinful. And then, and then that, you know, they, they think every thought and everything they see begins is sinful. So, so that's a scrupulous conscience. There's a perplexed conscience. That's a type of conscience that someone has two choices. There's two, they have to make a choice between two alternatives. And they, um, they fear there, there's a sin in, in both choices. But, um, and we'll talk about how to overcome a perplexed conscience. But they, they see two choices, but both of them are, are bad or both of them are sinful. So they're perplexed. They don't know which to choose. And there's a way to overcome that. Another type of conscience is a lax conscience. The, a person judges something to be good or lawful, but they've never informed themselves. They don't see the gravity of the moral obligation. Maybe don't take it seriously. They're lax. It's sort of like a, a lazy conscience. They don't do their, don't inform themselves. You know, um, uh, why, why is this a uh, you know, practice of the church? You know, uh, why is Jesus saying this? It's just lax. They don't give the time or effort to understand the truth. What are some of the rules that apply every case when uh, someone has to make a moral decision? Help okay. us with that, if you would. This is lifted right out of the catechism. So this is sort of towards the end of that section on, on moral theology. So what are some rules apply in every case, and the, and the catechism lists three of them. So they keep it very basic, very simple. And this is a catechism paragraph 1789, in case someone's following along. Along at home, right? <laughs> anyway, um, just so you know, I'm not making it up. This is not my personal opinion or anything. Um, so the one rule that applies in every case is you may never do evil so that good may result from it. So the way to the good is not through evil. 
So some people are confused about that. You know, they they say, well, the end will be good. If I so, for example, a stockbroker might um, or investor doesn't have to be a stockbroker. Just someone might invest in some enterprise that is um, morally evil. But yet they say, well, we will use the profits and give it to charity, which is a good thing. But it's a very evil business or practice they're engaging in. So that's never um, justified doing mm-hmm. evil to to do the good. Right. So number two shouldn't surprise you of the three rules that play in every case. The golden rule, wherever you wish that people would do to you, do so to them. That's right out of Matthew's gospel, Jesus' words in Matthew, and Luke's gospel. So treat others as you yourself would want to be treated. Easy, easy practical law to apply to our lives. And thirdly, charity always proceeds by, by way of respecting one's neighbor and his or her conscience. So what do we mean by that, respecting your neighbor's conscience? It means this, they quote uh, St. Paul in his letter to Romans, it is, not, it is right not to do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. So what would be a practical example of that, respecting the conscience of others? Well, let's say I, was, um, I took my sister out to dinner at a restaurant here in Hayes, and everyone knows I'm a priest here in Hayes. Uh, my sister's a beautiful woman, and, and we're pretty close in age, and they don't know her. So here's father out with a beautiful woman <laughs> at a nice restaurant dinner alone. Now, you might say, um, well, that's, that's innocent. It is innocent. But to respect other people's conscience, if I see parishioners, I'll introduce her. This is my sister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they don't. <laughs> so it doesn't trouble their conscience. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Or a Lent. Let's say, um, you know, you're to do a, a penance for Lent, and let's say um, a lot of people are more, more mature in their penances, but some people still just give up dessert. You know, let's say I did a, chose another penance, uh, and so during Lent I'm um, I go to a restaurant and and I'm just gorging on desserts during Lent on a Friday just going to town, well, that would not be prudent. That would not be respecting prisoners' consciences because I know many of them do cut back on food or delicacies during Lent. That would be scandalous and also disrespecting not being sensitive to mm-hmm. to their own spiritual life and everything. So I think this is pretty much kind of lost in society. Yeah. People say, I do what I want to do, and that's their problem what they think. Right. Well, that's not respecting their sensitive their conscience you know you might mislead someone absolutely this is okay so those are three rules never do evil so the good may result result from it the golden rule uh, treat others as you yourself would want to be treated and three the third rule that always applies in every moral decision is always respecting your neighbors uh, respecting your neighbor and respecting their their conscience mm. yeah how about um, how could a person resolve a doubtful conscience when they're in a situation where they're toying between two choices, for example? Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> doubtful conscience is a person's uncertain about the goodness or evil of an act. So a person's not to act on a doubtful conscience. They are to take the time to clarify and come to a, a certain conscience. So. Um, so, if possible, the action, when someone has a doubtful conscience, uh, the choice must be po- postponed until the person can reach some sort of certainty. So, uh, there's two different ways of doing this. There's a resolving, a, resolving it directly. So, uh, these are sort of the, the ways to 
uh, resolve it directly. And then there's a way of resolving a doubtful conscience indirectly. So when you don't have time, you know, you have to make a choice. You don't have, you know, hours or days or weeks to research, to learn, to pray. So but let's do the one that's directly where you do have the time to to do your due prudence and self-education, illumination. Um, one is know the objective teachings of the church and the Christian tradition. Um, even though you might think, you know, actually read the document. Now with the Internet and the websites, the Vatican website, all the documents are right there for various moral issues and everything. Just self-educate. Know what the official teaching of the church is. Even though you think you may not like it <laughs> or you think you already know it, go ahead and, and read the actual words, actual document, because you can't rely off of secular press or, or sometimes other sources to to do that for you. So read it yourself. This is your conscience you're, you're informing. So know the objective teaching of the church. A lot of people miss that step. <laughs> so two, pray for guidance. Prayer is always the second. A prayer is always an element in, in, in illuminating and asking that God might lead and guide us down the, the choice that's good and right. So know the teachings of the church. Pray for guidance. And then three, is for a, a practical suggestion would be to list the negatives and positives for doing doing it or not doing the act, or the negatives and, and, and positives, just to, to list those out. And then, again, pray for guidance. That <laughs> be the fourth step. Pray again. Uh, bring this to the Lord. And then the fifth is to consult with either a priest or a spiritual director for counsel, not for decision, because it's a person's, you have to follow your conscience, a person's choice in, the, in this matter. So consult with uh, a learned person, priest or spiritual director for counsel, and then finally actually make the decision. Um, so we're talking about educating the mind, so some reasoning is involved, uh, prayer, uh, the spiritual side of it, the practical side, too, of listing the, the positives and negatives for doing or not doing the act, and then praying for guidance again, some consultation, not don't asking for someone to make the decision for you, but it can be your decision and then actually make the decision. So that's one way of, um, of um, resolving a conscience. What's the indirect way? Let's say you don't, a person doesn't have much time. You know, they have to make this choice, and they only have a, a day or a few hours or whatever. So these are called ways to, to reach practical certainty. Not absolute, but practical certainty. So it's called, it's called the slang is it's called the reflex principles. You know, reflex is something you do quickly. And reflex principles are things that allow you to make a hopefully a moral decision when you don't have much much time. So, when in doubt, favor the accused. Now, these are in our American law system, legal system. They actually borrowed this from the uh, you know Catholic moral theology, and and um, so that's what we do, don't we? In the court of law, we favor the innocent until proven guilty. You favor the accused. So, crime is not to be presumed, uh, but to be proved. So, in doubt. If you have to make a moral decision, in favor of the accused. Two, in doubt, presumption stands on the side of the superior or the authority. So when in doubt, on a moral decision, you don't have much time, do what the church does and has done, you know, and has taught. So another principle, the reflex principles within doubt, amplify the favorable and restrict the unfavorable. So choose the choice that gives the most favorable, brings about the most favorable things, uh, effects or consequences. Mm. Um, the, again, this is when you don't have much time to, to read or, or to pray. You have to make the decision quickly. Uh, when in doubt, favor the customary and the approved. 
So what, what has been done in the past, you know, uh, by holy men and women? You know, I mean, follow the example of saints, in other words, or, or others. And so those are um, some of the reflex principles when a person has to make a moral decision you know, more quickly. Sure. Maybe you give an example or scenario here of some of the beliefs that can be applied, if you would. How about this scenario is um, a man fails to learn about various new traffic laws. You know, even though we were all mailed that booklet <laughs> <laughs> and um, he didn't read it since he claimed he's never had an accident, has a perfect driving record. So one day this man unknowingly violates one of the new laws and and hurts someone at a crosswalk. The man claims he didn't know about the changes in the law, nor did he have the intention of hurting anyone. So should he, should he be held morally responsible and morally guilty for this accident? Mm, that's kind of a toughie. Yeah. Um, he was of mailed course, a book. He was mailed a book, so I would say yes, he would be. <laughs> yes, would be. he could have known. <clears throat> right. It wasn't a mystery. The book was there. He should have known. Took on the responsibility of, if he was looking out for other people, he should have known the, and I think probably a policeman would tell you that too. Sure. <laughs> you could have known. You should have known. And that's right out of Catholic moral theology. Mm. I mean, that's and it's been kind of institutionalized in our secular American legal system. Yeah. So another example, quick example. Yeah, we have time. So okay, a woman ahead. decides to try a new gourmet dish for the parish dinner that contains wild mushrooms. And she purchases the wild mushrooms at a local outdoor market. She uses the mushrooms not knowing they're poisonous. So after the meal, as the pastor is giving a talk, everyone goes into a deep trance-like, trance-like coma. At first, it seemed like natural response to the pastor's talk, <laughs> but uh, this trance-like state seems especially pronounced. She has poisoned the entire parish. So is that a mortal sin? No, because she didn't know she was doing it. <laughs> and or she, she didn't she, know that. No, and she, yeah. she didn't will it. Right. And she couldn't have known. She's not an expert in mushrooms. She bought it at the market. You know what I mean? It's still an evil act. You're just poisoning the entire parish. Mm -hmm. But a morally responsible or culpable, no. Because she, you know, didn't no knowledge, didn't wouldn't have freely chosen to do this. You mm -hmm. know, no no will to harm our mother. So, so it's, you kind of have to dissect moral cases because an act can be very evil through and through. But you know, if a person's you know all those elements of moral sin is not there, right. then that certainly. It makes it look at it. Look at it again. You know. Sure. Great stuff. We appreciate you coming in. Welcome back again, and appreciate you sharing your thoughts on conscience here, and then some of the teachings that we have, obviously from the catechism. And if you would, Father, would you, uh, as we close out the hour, would you uh, bless us in, with prayer here? Sure. And the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of our life, for the gift of our mind and our body and of our soul. Uh, we thank you for the gift of our church, of our community. Uh, most of all, we thank you for the gift of your Son, who through him you share with us faith, hope, and, and love, and the gift of salvation. Bless us. Help us to be good stewards of our conscience, to develop and uh, form consciences that are open to your truth, consciences that want to follow the, the light of your love, consciences that will continue to transform us more and more into images of Christ. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. If you would like to comment on today's show, please go to DV Mercy and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon. The comment button is in the middle of the page. 
You're listening to the Network of Stations of Divine Mercy Radio. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.